let's just have a brief prayer and take a look at Acts chapter 19. Father in heaven, we come before you just now, and we want to thank you for the way that you have already ministered to us in this church service. Father, you have given us the gift of music, and we have sung. You have given us the gift of resources, and we have returned offerings to you. Father, you have given us the gift of prayer, and we have prayed. And Father, you have given us the gift of marriage, and we have celebrated 70 years of Milton and Betty's marriage. Father, you've given us the gift of children, and we have gathered our children together and told them a story about consequences and mercy and love. And Father, you have given us the gift of Scripture. And so now as we open Scripture and as we continue to focus on this amazing book of Acts, we pray that there would be something today in this passage, ancient though it be, that would speak directly to our modern situation and circumstance. Father, come into this place, into this room, and minister to us by your Spirit, is this preacher's prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's go to Acts chapter 19. Acts has just 28 chapters, and so we are well past the halfway point now. We're in Acts chapter 19, and just on Friday, Jared and myself and Pastor Daniel were discussing what our next sermon series is going to be on. And I'm not going to let you know just yet, but I tell you, it's going to be a winner. I'm really excited about it. It's going to be a challenging series. It's going to be a long series. And in many ways, it'll be a really good follow-up to what we're learning here in the book of Acts. And just this last week, I was doing a little bit of reading on the book of Acts. Being away, I kind of wanted to be abreast of what Daniel and Jared had covered in Acts 15, 16, 17, and 18. Four sermons that I missed. I'm looking forward to listening to them on CD. But I was just doing a little bit of reading. And and as I was reading, I read a particular commentary that said something that struck me. And it struck me just in the right place. It said that the book of Acts is a book about cities. It's a book about cities. It's a book about places. It's it's a book about a group of people, beginning with Peter and later transitioning to Paul, who were absolutely insistent on taking the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel, the message of the life, death, and resurrection of the Messiah, taking that message into the center of culture, into the places where people were gathered and people were talking where things were bought and sold and where important conversations were happening into homes and and into civic places, both civic and religious locations. And right here in Acts chapter 19, we find another city that's going to encounter the gospel. And uh, in Acts 17, 18, and 19, we have a, a succession in three chapters of what were the three most significant cities in ancient times for this area, the area in and around the Mediterranean. In Acts 17... Paul went to the philosophical, intellectual capital of the Greco-Roman world. He went to Athens, right? And the gospel was brought right into the public sphere, into the public square, and it was discussed. And Paul stood on Mars Hill and presented the resurrection of Jesus in front of the intellectual elite of his day. That's Acts 17. In Acts 18, Paul goes to Corinth. And if you look at where Corinth is on the map, Corinth was... 
the trade capital. It was the cultural capital. It was a seaport city. It was a wildly cosmopolitan city. People from Africa and Asia and well up into what we would call Europe. I mean, it was a fantastically cosmopolitan, culturally rich place. And the gospel went to Corinth. And there is Paul preaching in Corinth and and bringing this message this message of Christ and of his crucifixion and especially of his resurrection right into the public's... He wanted this to be discussed. Paul didn't believe. The early church did not believe that the gospel, the message of Jesus was something that was to be safely uh, buried or hidden or protected away in a closet or a chest. It wasn't like a dusty old volume or book to be placed on an antiquated shelf. No, 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 no. They said, man, this is an important message. This is the truth about reality. This is the truth about God. This is the truth about relationships. This is the truth about sin and death. This needs to be in the public sphere. It needs to be discussed. So that's Acts 18. In Acts 19, we go to what is the third, probably, most significant city in ancient times. And, of course, Rome would be thrown in there as well. And Paul's about ready to head to Rome. So you have Corinth, Athens, Ephesus, and Rome. Paul cannot stay away from the cities. Because the cities is where the people are. And these are people that need to hear this message. And in Acts 19, what we're going to look at today, Paul gets himself, this was not uncommon with him, into a little bit of trouble. It's actually not really fair to say that Paul got himself into trouble. It's more true to say that the gospel got Paul into trouble. Right? So we're in Acts chapter 19. And in Acts chapter 19, as Paul is making his way to Ephesus, a city that was a moneyed city, there were poets, and there were temples. In fact, you could say, it might be a bit of an oversimplification, but you could say that Athens was the philosophical, intellectual capital of the ancient world. You could say that Corinth was the commerce capital of the ancient world. And if that was true, Ephesus would have been the religious capital of the ancient world. Ephesus is a significant religious place. There's a lot of culture there. There are a lot of trade routes that run through Ephesus. And as such, it was a place of significant religious influence. And as we're going to encounter here, Ephesus in modern Turkey was the location of one of the most significant deities in both Roman and Greek thinking. The Romans called her Diana, and the Greeks called her Artemis. Right? And her temple was located here in Ephesus. And something radical is going to happen in Acts 19. The message of Jesus Christ is going to come into direct conflict with the temple of Artemis. Right? With Diana of the Ephesians. And we're going to find that there's a conflict. But that conflict doesn't occur in the way that some of us might think. So let's take a look at Acts chapter 19. There's really three stories, three sections in Acts 19. The first section that we encounter is kind of a fascinating story about some people that Paul encounters that are re-baptized, and we'll spend just a moment on that. The second sort of section in Acts 19 is quite an interesting one where there's this group of like Jewish exorcists called the sons of Sceva that try to cast out a demon and have a most unfortunate consequence. And then we get to the real meat and potatoes of Acts 19, which is the great riot that takes place in the theater, the Colosseum of Ephesus. So let's start by just reading Acts chapter 19, verse 1. This is where Paul encounters some people that haven't even heard about the Holy Spirit. It says in verse 1, 
And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Hey, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? What they say to him is most interesting. They said to him, We haven't heard so much as whether there is a Holy Spirit. We don't even know what you're talking about. Paul says, Hey, have you guys received the Holy Spirit? Your disciples? Your followers of of the one true God? Yes, we are. Have you received the Holy Spirit? What's the Holy Spirit? Paul says in verse 3, Then into what were you baptized? And they said, Oh, well, we were baptized into John's baptism. Now, this is John the Baptist. Just today in our youth Sabbath school class, we were learning a little bit about baptism. Baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo, which means to immerse, to dunk, to put underwater. And John, when when Paul encounters them, he says, Hey, wait a minute. Were you baptized? Did you receive the Holy Spirit? We don't even know what the Holy Spirit is, man. Well, then what were you baptized? Oh, we were baptized into John's baptism. Now, when you read the New Testament, the Gospels and the book of Acts, the baptism of John was called a baptism of repentance. It was a baptism of turning. The word repent literally means to turn. John was effectively a voice crying in the wilderness that said that Israel was on a trajectory of heading this direction. It was heading away from Messiah, right? Israel was heading this direction, and John began to preach, and he was trying, ambitious task though it be, to turn the whole of Israel in another direction. That's what the word repentance means. It means to turn, and more specifically, to turn around. And so Paul says, well, what were you baptized into then? Well, we were baptized into John's baptism. This is a remarkable thing. These guys are disciples of John's, believers in Messiah, and don't yet even know about the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, then Paul said to them, John did indeed baptize with the baptism of repentance. He doesn't diminish the authenticity of their experience, but he wants to bring them higher. This is a lesson for us to learn. When we are standing in advance or farther along than somebody else who's newer in the Christian faith, the temptation sometimes comes to us, whether overtly or subtly, to diminish the present experience of someone who's not as far along as we are. I don't see Paul doing that. Paul actually affirms their religious commitment, and he affirms where they're at. But he also wants to bring them further still. And we need to learn that balance, to affirm where people are, but to feel the passion for ourselves and them included to be called further in to the faith. John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this... They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul preached the gospel to these people who were already disciples, and they were re-baptized. Re-baptized again, dunked again, immersed again. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues, with languages, and began to prophesy. The gifts of the Spirit come upon them. There were about 12 of these men, verse 7. Now, let's just pause here and just say something brief about rebaptism. Very brief. This is the only instance in the New Testament that we have any indication of rebaptism, right? This is it, right here, Acts 19. This is the only instance in Scripture where we encounter the idea of being baptized again. The theology behind or the thinking behind rebaptism goes something like this You're not rebaptized because you committed a sin. Right? That would be a, 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 a sacramental, ceremonial, you know, now you've done this, go through this ritualistic washing. That's not what's taking place. 
Rebaptism, biblically speaking, is that these people were literally unaware of the fullness into which they had been baptized. They'd been baptized into the baptism of John, which was a baptism of repentance or of turning. But the baptism of John, while it had convincing power, it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit and of Jesus that has keeping and saving power. Rebaptism, I have people that want to get rebaptized all the time, and I am a strong discourager of rebaptism which is a remarkable thing since I myself was rebaptized. Because most of the requests that I get for people to be rebaptized are built around a misunderstanding of why you should be rebaptized. They they were baptized and then they committed a sin. They did something. They wandered away for a year or two or more. And now because they have this cathartic desire, this desire for release to begin again, they want a clean slate, which is a very human desire. Very human desire to be a, done with the past and to have a new, fresh start. They want to be rebaptized. And, and I have, on occasion, administered rebaptisms under those circumstances. But that's not really what's going on here in Acts 19. What's going on here in Acts 19 is that these people just theologically didn't even have the full picture of what baptism meant. Now, let me just quickly explain that. In Hebrew thinking, when someone is breathing, they're alive right? And they noticed that when people stopped breathing, that they died. There was death. And so the Hebrews came to associate breath with life. They called it the breath of life, right? And so when a baptismal candidate wanders into the waters of baptism, he or she is breathing, but that person is then placed underwater, in which case you'll have to stop breathing, right? So you have the cessation of breath, the stopping of breath, which in Hebrew thinking is death. You are then, after dying, holding your breath, placed under the water, symbolic of and memorializing the burial of Jesus. But then you don't stay there, of course. You come back up out of the water, symbolizing the resurrection of Jesus, and then when that person comes up, and it all happens in a flash, it happens in a moment, you take that breath. (gasps) You take that first breath just as a child takes its first breath and the biblical language that's wrapped around this is you are born again. You're born again. You're taking your first breath again. Baptism then is a symbol, a remarkable, beautiful symbol of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The candidate is saying, the life that Jesus lived is a life that I have not lived. The death that Jesus experienced was the death that I deserved. The burial that Jesus underwent should have been my burial. And, here's the good news, the resurrection of Jesus is my only hope of a resurrection and a future immortal life. That's what you're saying in baptism. And if your baptism was saying anything other than that, not to offend, but you might have just gone swimming with your pastor. Baptism is not a graduation ceremony. It's not something that you do when you turn 13 and your parents think that you should be baptized or whatever. No, 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 no. Baptism is a ritual reenacting of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It is a personal commitment. That's why as Seventh-day Adventists, we don't practice infant baptism because an infant can't understand repentance and trust and belief and faith and hope. A believer, though, can. 
A teenager can, an adult can understand those things. And so, as a biblically-based church, we practice believer's baptism, not infant baptism. So, Paul rebaptizes these people, and then he begins to make his way back toward... He's heading into Ephesus, and he makes his way that direction. It says in verse 8, He went into the synagogue, which as we've already learned in the book of Acts, this is Paul's classic custom. He goes into the synagogue, which was a place of conversation and dialogue and of, of religious significance. It was a meeting house, like a town hall. And Paul spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God, but when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way, that's the Christian faith before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples. And he reasoned daily in the school of Tyrannus. Now, we don't know anything about Tyrannus except that he ran a school in Ephesus. It was probably nothing like TVAC. It was nothing like Gold Coast. This would have probably been a single room located probably on an outer uh, wing of a market somewhere. A single room where people would have gathered together to learn. It might have been something closer to Arise, the little school that we run here. A simple school of discipleship and education and evangelism. And Paul began by going right into the heart of the synagogue and he labored there for three months. But when there was a hard-heartedness among some, when he felt that he was no longer welcome, he didn't force himself to, to, upon them. He didn't insist on staying in an ungentlemanly or, or manipulative way. He said, okay, I'll excuse myself. Jesus himself had counseled as much. He said, hey, if you go into a city and people invite you into your home, go in. Go in. Stay, stay with them. He said, but if you go into the city and they reject you, he said, just, just kick the dust off of your feet and go to some place where you're welcome. There's no point in pushing or shoving our religious beliefs down somebody's throats. If they don't want to hear it, the old saying is true. A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. And so Paul, in an act of deference and kindness and just basic social savvy, he excuses himself from a situation where he was unwanted. And he goes to this small school. We don't know much about the school. We know nothing about Tyrannus. Uh, uh, but he goes and he teaches in this school. Not for a few months, but for two years he stays in Ephesus. Verse 10 says, And the, he continued here for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So here's Paul. Get the picture in your mind. A little single room. Right? Just a small little room, not a great big expansive campus, not a TVAC, right? Not a Lindisfarne. This isn't a big extended camp. No, 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 that's a room, little room. And here's Paul sitting down as a, as a rabbi and as a teacher and as a missionary, and he's teaching people. He's educating people on the most basics of the Christian faith. But he's doing this in this city, Ephesus, that was a city of several hundred thousand people, a city of hugely significant religious influence in the ancient Greco-Roman world. Now, you would think this is such a small thing. It's a single man with a few of his traveling partners in a single room. I mean, really, what kind of a difference in the big picture is this going to make? But Luke wants you to know there, at the end of verse 10, that everybody began to hear, that, that this began to be a saturative message. People began to hear about this Jesus of Messiah, this Jewish deliverer, right? Again, I want to say that the book of Acts is a book about cities. It's a book about places like Athens and Rome and Corinth and Ephesus. Paul didn't think that the gospel was something that should be tucked neatly and nicely away. No, 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 no. And I hope you don't either. I hope you don't either. I hope that in your own life, the gospel is front and center. 
the fact that you love God and that you know that God loves you, that, that whether you're a laborer building houses or you're a teacher that's teaching students or you work in, as a medical doctor or a nurse or whatever capacity God has given to you, while you do not want to be, as we've seen Paul wasn't, shoving religion down other people's throats, it, it's also not something that should be hidden. It should be front and center. Hey, this is who I am. It, it should be out there in the public sphere, in the public square, something to be discussed and believed and understood. Awesome. Well, now here's where this kind of interesting little thing happens. And it seems like Luke is telling the story about Paul. And he's putting a real emphasis on power and strength. And we're going to see why here in just a moment. But some really weird stuff starts happening. And, and even Luke says it's weird. Look at verse 11. Now, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. Okay, translation, some weird stuff started happening in Ephesus. And when you read this, it is weird. The fact that Luke is writing this, oh, probably at this point, 15 years after the actual event. This is happening here at the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey. Paul took three missionary journeys, then he went to Rome. So four if you include his trip to Rome. This is happening toward the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey, so it's sort of A.D. 53, right? Just over 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. When Luke is writing this, he's writing it sometime before A.D. 70. We don't know exactly when, but we'll say around A.D. 65, 66, somewhere in there. So when, when Luke is reflecting back on what happened to Ephesus, it's as if Luke is saying, that was not only weird and unusual then, nothing like that has happened since. Well, what was so weird that was happening? Verse 12. So that even handkerchiefs, cloths, or aprons that were brought from his body to the sick, and diseases left the sick, and evil spirits went out of them. Okay, this is wild stuff here. Okay, and Luke wants you to know, this was not normal stuff. We don't have any instance of something like this happening in the Gospels where somebody took a garment from Jesus and waved it next to somebody or somebody touched it. The only possible instance that we could have is when the woman touched the hem of the garment of Jesus. But of course, Jesus was in the garment. These are like cloths and handkerchiefs and aprons that are, have literally brushed against Paul or Paul has worn them and then they're touched to sick people, to sick people and these sick people are coming alive. And Luke says, that was unusual. That was not normal, day-to-day, -day, you know, status quo kind of stuff. Well, as this is happening, the gospel is getting a kind of power. Like, hey, man, that, that gospel that Paul is preaching, it has the power to heal the sick. Now, Luke has already given us two instances in the Bible where the gospel has come head-to-head -head with sorcerers, magicians, we saw it back in Acts chapter 8 with a guy named Simon, and we saw it in Acts chapter 13 with a guy named Elymas, right? And in both of those instances, Luke wants to make it very clear that while the gospel is powerful, it's not a magic trick. It's not a, it's not a lucky charm, right? It's not a talisman that you can wave. It's not a rabbit's foot. It's not, it's not tarot cards that you can, you know, just sort of, you know, say the abracadabra magic saying, and then people suddenly get well. It's not that. But, but this was so unusual, this, this cloth casting out of illnesses and demons, that, that people were observing this and saying, man, there's power in that. What's the ritual in that? How do I access that power? In Acts chapter 13, you'll recall that, that the sorcerer there, Elamus, he wanted to purchase this power. Man, how, do I, I wanna, how much money do I have to pay to be able to do what you're doing? And so there were some people that caught wind of this 
power, and they wanted access to it. And what happens is very interesting. It's a little humorous if it wasn't so sad. Verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus, like it was a rabbit's foot, or a talisman, like saying abracadabra, or hocus pocus, like the name of Jesus has some magical, ceremonial, ritualistic power. And so these Jewish exorcists, who are not followers of Jesus, they don't believe in the Lord Jesus, they're not disciples of the Lord Jesus, but they know the name. They've heard the name, and they've heard the name has power, but they've conflated the idea of power and magic. So they get this idea. They take the name and they approach some people who had evil spirits and they said, we exercise you or we adjure you, we command you. We command you, evil spirits, by Jesus, you know, the one that Paul preaches. Now don't miss this. This was not their own personal experience. It wasn't something that they knew personally or experientially, they're actually two persons removed from the thing they're trying to talk about. We're talking, we command you in the name of Jesus, the one that Paul preaches. Jesus was a reasonably common name, Yeshua, among Jews in those days. And so just to be sure that they, the demons got the right Yeshua, it's the one that Paul's preaching, right? Now what happens is quite humorous, and, and Luke seems to pick up on the fact that it's humorous. It's a sad element as well. The evil spirit answered and said, verse 15, what a funny thing. Now, this is the demon speaking and says, I know who Jesus is and I know who Paul is, but I don't know who you are. What a funny story. Here's where it gets even more amazing. Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. That's not a pretty picture, right? So here comes these, you know, Jewish exorcists, and they see Paul, and they see that Paul has a power. Paul, something about Paul. Luke is building a story. He's building, creating a situation where the power of the gospel, even though it's from this little schoolroom, Tyrannus' school is about ready to come in conflict with Diana of the Ephesians, with Artemis, right? And he's building this power. This power is coming. He's already talked about those that were rebaptized. They were were speaking in tongues and they were prophesying. That this, and he's building this story and, and he tells this little side story of these Jewish exorcists that tried to do the same by using the name of Jesus like a talisman or a, or a ritualistic saying and they actually got themselves into trouble. Hey, I know who Jesus is and I know who Paul is, but who are you? I suppose the takeaway lesson for us, this is a bit of a wild story. Most of us have not been exposed to this kind of demons and exorcisms, and we hear about it, and we know that it does still take place. I myself have witnessed instances of it, but it's not a day-to-day -day occurrence. And so some of us might be looking at this saying, man, where does this, how does that shoe fit me in 2014 living in secular, modern Australia? Well, let me just say it fits at least in this way. It's not enough to know about the Jesus that David Asherick preaches, it's not enough to know about the Jesus that Mark Finley or Doug Batchelor or your favorite preacher preaches. No, you have to know Jesus for yourself. The preachers will do their best and the pastors will do their best and the elders will do their best. But at the end of the day, it's about you having a personal connection that creates power with your own Savior, with your own God. It fits at least there. Now... We're getting toward the riot. 
And many who had believed, it's in verse uh, 17, this became known to all the Jews and the Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. And many of those who had practiced magic, see, now they're realizing, hey, this isn't magic. This is something else. This is a relationship. This is an experience. This is a trust in Messiah. They brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of everyone. They counted up the value of all the books that were burned and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. And then Luke gives us a classic Lucan refrain, verse 20. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. He said this over and over and over again. The last time that I was here preaching on Acts 13 and 14, we noted that especially in Acts 12 with Herod and in other places, Luke is pushing these twin themes of growth. The gospel is growing, but there's also significant opposition. Growth and opposition. Growth and opposition. Growth and opposition. And Luke here is just given his classic Lucan refrain. This is the chorus in Luke's song. The word of God grew, and it prospered, and it multiplied, and the disciples were increasing. There's all different kinds of resistance. There's religious resistance. There's political resistance. There's circumstantial resistance. There's all these different kinds of resistances to the gospel. But the way that Luke is telling the story, the gospel is never fully impeded. It may be slowed. It may be delayed. It may meet some resistance. But it's just like a, a big you know, bulldozer that just makes its way up, 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 and then eventually over whatever the obstacle that would seek to place its way in the face of, of the gospel. And so we want you to know the gospel was really making an impact in Ephesus. Now, if you want to know where people's hearts are really at, talk to them about their money. Take away some of their money. Right? Threaten their money. It's, it, so often it comes down to money. My good friend Josh, my housemate, who's one of the Bible workers here, is preaching today over in Bray Park. And, and one of the things that he's talking about is money and greed and how the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And it's a very appropriate thing for us. And it doesn't appear as though the Australians are so wild about Christmas like the Americans are. I tell you, this whole Black Friday thing, you know, as soon as Thanksgiving is done, which happened just this last Thursday, it's like you know, pell-mell, headlong into rabid and rampant consumerism, running up your credit card debt, out, you know, living outside of your wage and your ability, you know, for a month so that you can then pay off your credit card. You know, it's just ridiculous. It's rampant, ridiculous consumerism, right? And I'm sure that there is some of that in Australia. But it doesn't seem to be quite at the same level, though maybe, maybe I just haven't been exposed to it yet. Maybe it's coming as yet. But it's very appropriate that we would be encountering this message because what's going to happen here is that a financial thing is about ready to take place. The gospel is going to hit people where it counts, in their butt, where they keep their wallet, right? In the purse, where they keep the credit card. Verse 21. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in his heart that when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, he said, after all, I've been there, I'm going to go to Rome. He had no idea how long it was going to take him to get there, but it was going to be a rather circuitous path to Rome. So he went, he sent into Macedonia two of those from Greece who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. He remains in Turkey, but he sends some of his followers ahead to Greece. He's on his way to Greece and eventually to Rome, but he's not going to go straight to Rome. He's actually going to go back to Jerusalem and then to Rome. He doesn't know that yet. 
Verse 23, about that time there arose a great commotion about the way, that is the Christian faith. Well, what's the commotion about? It's about the thing we were just talking about, money, money. Verse 24, for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, he brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of a similar occupation. They had a union meeting, and he said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus in our town, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence will be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. You see, now the gospel is impacting where people really care. People do care a little bit about philosophy. They care a little bit about beliefs. But if you really want to touch people in a place that's a nerve ending for them, it's an it's a, it's a open nerve in the tooth, you touch their wallet. You touch their economics. You touch their finances. And here this little union meeting is gathered together. Hey, all of this preaching, all this carrying on about Jesus Messiah, and all of this carrying on that these gods that we're making, these little figurines of Diana, souvenirs, idols, that these aren't really gods, hey, this is impacting our bottom line. Attendance was down. Pilgrimages were down. Purchases of these figurines were down. And they're all tracing it back they believe, to that little schoolroom, that little schoolroom over in Tyrannus, where he's just there for two years, just preaching, teaching, educating. I tell you, we're just a little building over here in the south end of the Gold Coast, you know, we're just doing our own little thing here. But I believe that even in this little room, with just this few amount of people relative to the total population of the area in which we live, I think that we are the kinds of people and we serve the kind of God that could make a larger impact in the community in which we live. Do you believe that? I think we could make a real positive difference. And Paul was trying to make a positive difference, but here's the point. That positive difference was perceived negatively. Right? And it began to get him in the wallet, the bottom line. Hey, we got a problem here. Right? He's calling into disrepute our trade and this great goddess. Now, when they heard this, they were all full of wrath, and they cried out, and they said, great is Diana of the Ephesians, right? When in doubt, say it with confidence. Nothing a little enthusiasm can't solve. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater. That's a key word, that word theater. We're going to come back to that. We're going to end on that word, that word theater. It's the Greek word theatron, theater. We're going to come back to it. The th- this, by the way, this theater is not like this. It's not like a cinema down here at, you know, whatever. No, no, this is, a, this is that you can go today to Ephesus and stand in this theater. It seats 25,000 people. It's a stadium. It's an ancient, giant stadium. 25,000 people can be seated there. The whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into this little union meeting has grown and and it's tapping into a frustration, an economic frustration that people believe. And there might have been, it might have been multifactorial. There could have been other reasons. But they believe that they have a scapegoat in Paul. They believe they have a scapegoat in this Jesus. They believe they have a scapegoat in this preaching about gods and goddesses and idols and and they're going to take it out. So they rush into the theater with one accord and they find two guys, Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. They can't find Paul. They're looking for Paul, can't find him. 
but they find two guys that they know are traveling with Paul. Now, these are probably like two, <laughs> they're probably like two deacons that Paul talked into coming along for the trip. Oh, no, no, you'll be fine. You'll have a great time. You get to see Ephesus. And, you know, this, this crowd is gathering, and there's a momentum that's gaining. And, and they say, hey, there's two of Paul's travel companions, Gaius and Aristarchus. Grab them. And here are these two deacons that are just like buying souvenirs in the market. You know, just like, whoom, swept away with the tide of, of the mob's increasing anger and frustration. <laughs> now this is awesome here I gotta read you this I just read this this morning I got such a kick out of it maybe you will too N.T. Wright in his commentary says this get the scene in your mind right? the increasing anger, frustration more and more people making their way into the theater hundreds become thousands and thousands become many thousands and he says we ought to know the scene by now We see it often enough on our television screens. A huge gathering assembled in the street and in the public square. Faces are flushed with excitement and anger. Being reminded of some great hero or leader has whipped them up into excitement and they are eager to show what's what. The chanting gets louder and louder, rhythmic and strong, summoning up the energy of blood, tribal identity, and local pride. It's designed to give energy to those who are going out to fight their battles and to strike terror into the enemies. It often works. And that's just a football match. (laughs) Oh, shame on us. We have our modern idols. We have our modern, modern arenas and theaters. They rush these guys in there. Now look at this. Verse 30. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Now, this tells us a little bit about the recklessness of Paul. Here's this mob. You know, they've grabbed Gaius and Aristarchus. The whole thing is getting out of control, and Paul's like, I've got to get in there. Say what? He had this sense of, he was an opportunist. He thought, man, there's 25,000 people there for an evangelistic meeting. Yeah, either that or a lynching. Verse 31, then some of the officials of Asia who were his friends, Paul had made friends with some of the city people, they sent to him saying, please don't go in there, Paul, stay out. We already know that he got stoned in one city, went out, they thought he was dead, he revived, went back in. So we're dealing with a person who is at least as reckless as any church member here, with the possible exception of a couple of you. Maybe not quite as reckless as Pete Johnson, where you at, Pete? You know you would have ran back in there. Some therefore cried one thing and some one another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them didn't even know why they were come together. Doesn't that happen? That's going on right now in America. I don't know if you knew that or not. America right now, there are riots and protests all over. Have you heard about this? All over the United States because of the shooting of a young teenage boy named Mike Brown about 120 days ago by a white police officer named Darren Wilson. And uh, they were investigating, hey, is there enough evidence to... There was no trial, but... The state of Missouri convened a grand jury to figure out, is there enough evidence to have a trial? And the state came back and said no. And St. Louis went crazy and dozens and dozens and dozens of locations all over the United States going crazy right now. Because it was a, it was a matchbox for a much larger racial, economic, social divide in the United States. Which is remarkable. Even with a black president... The racial tensions and the economic tensions in the United States are are simmering at an all-time high. Right now, 2014. It's wild. 
Absolutely wild. Many of these people don't even care about Mike Brown. They don't care about racial... They're just there to make a... They just, they're just there to make a fuss. Just create havoc and, and they're, they're that kind of people. That's what's happening here. There's some people who show up, hey, hey, what are we cheering about? I don't know, I don't know. Who are those two guys down there? They're looking at Gaius and Aristarchus getting... I don't know, just... They drew Alexander, I'm in verse 33, out of the multitude. The Jews shoved Alexander forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand, and he wanted to make a defense to the people. So he goes to try and speak to 25,000 rioting people. Now, this is classic. But when they found out he was a Jew, all with one, with one voice cried out for two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Yeah. Finally, when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, how you quiet 25,000 people? Maybe there was only 20,000. The arena will seat 25,000. But how you qu quiet that many people, I don't know. He says, men of Ephesus. Now, this is the key. We're getting to the point here. Men of Ephesus, what man is there here who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the goddess Diana and of the image that fell down from Zeus? Historians tell us that there was a meteorite that had fallen just outside of Ephesus. And the ancient Ephesians took it as a symbol from the gods, a sign from the gods. And they took this meteorite and they said, this is an image of the goddess Diana. Very unlikely that it actually looked like her. Um, but they, they said it, saw it as a sign. And he's saying, hey, we all know that God sent us a sign. What are you carrying on about? Verse 36, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. Verse 37, the key. I love this. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Let me translate that for you. These people have said nothing ill against your religion or against Diana or against the temple. They've not stolen it was an ancient, fairly common practice to steal from the ornate and, and opulent temples of the day. And he says, hey, these people aren't thieves, and they've not been tearing down your religion. They've not been yelling about your temple. They've not been defaming your goddess. They've not been blaspheming Diana or the city. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen who have instigated this riot, if they have a case against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls, let them bring their charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly, for we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar. There being no reason for which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering, and it ends very kind of, it just kind of goes out with a whimper, not with a bang. The whole thing just sort of deflates. It just stops. Verse 41. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Now here's the point I want to hone in on. Final point. I love the fact that when the, when the town clerk stands up and says, hey, wait a minute. These guys aren't lambasting your religion. These guys aren't blaspheming your gods and goddesses. These guys aren't tearing down your religious culture. They all sort of stood there and said, oh, I, I, I guess that's true. Here's the point. What was Paul teaching in that little school there? In Tyrannus' school. What was he teaching? He was teaching Jesus. You see, the heart and soul of apostolic Christianity, listen carefully, the heart and soul of apostolic Christianity, the gospel that Paul preached, was not primarily 
about being against something. It was about being for something. And when we preach the good and the positive and the beautiful, the temple in Ephesus was crumbling anyway. The economics of Ephesus were what they were. It wasn't all Paul's fault. False religious systems and false religious ideas will die the natural death of unsustainability. It's not our responsibility to tear everything and everyone down around us. Too often Christians and too often Seventh-day Adventists are known by our neighbors, by our co-workers, by our friends, and by our associates for what we are against. Come on now. Am I telling the truth? We are against that kind of music. And we're against that kind of entertainment. And we're against that kind of sporting event. And we're against that kind of conduct. And we're against... Okay, fine and good. You're welcome to be against whatever you feel inclined to be against. But I love the idea that when the accusation was made against Gaius and Aristarchus and later Alexander and by implication Paul... And the, church, the town clerk stands up and says, These guys haven't said anything negative about your religion. They all just sort of stood there twiddling their thumbs in absolute silence because it was true. They had stuck to the positive. Paul's gospel was not primarily against something. By implication, it would end up being against certain things, certain ideas, certain gods and certain goddesses and certain temples. But Paul preached the truth in a positive, proactive, and appealing way. And he let the various temples and various unsustainable religious and cultural uh, gods and goddesses around him, he let them die their own natural deaths. And we should do the same. We should stick to the positive and preach the truth. For every five things that we're against, there should be one major thing that we're for. For every time that we say, oh, we don't and we don't and we stop and we, that's bad. And, okay, fine and good. But may our neighbors and may our coworkers and may our family members and brothers and sisters, may they know that we are primarily for something. And the thing we're for is for God and for Christ and for salvation, for people to be saved, for people to be loved, for people to be drawn into an experience with the God who made them and who loved them. Rather than being known as the frowny-faced curmudgeon people who are down on everyone and everything. Closing with that, Paul was the master contextualizer. Back in Acts chapter 13, when Paul went into the synagogue, he was in a Jewish context, in a Jewish situation, and he talked to the Jews about Israel and Abraham. Makes sense. He's talking to Jews about Israel and Abraham. In Acts 14, when Paul makes his way to Lystra, there is no synagogue, so he goes into the temple square, and he doesn't talk about Israel and Abraham. What does he talk about? He talks about God who's a creator. He talks about the fields that receive rain and how bellies receive food. He's speaking their language. When Paul goes into Athens, he doesn't tear down Athenian religion and start saying I'm against everything. He actually goes the opposite. He swings the other way and he says, I perceive that you guys are very religious. Well, that's a bit of a compliment. A compliment to pagans. And then he says, I was walking around amidst your sculptures and I saw an idol to the unknown God. I've got a message from the unknown God. What? 
Not only does he pay them the compliment of being very religious and very devout, he says, I've got a message from one of your own gods. And then he says, as some of your own poets have said, and he's quoting here from a Greek poet named Ovidiu. My brother-in-law is named Ovidiu, named after the Greek poet Ovid. He quotes from Ovid and says, we are the offspring of him. We're his offspring. What? What's this guy doing? He's building bridges. What's he doing? He's building bridges. He's building bridges, not walls. Not what he's against, but what he's for. You're very religious. I got a message from one of your own gods. And as some of your own poets have said, he's reaching out. When he speaks to Jews, he speaks the Jewish language. He speaks about Jewish things and Jewish ideas and Jewish concepts. When he speaks to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles, he speaks about Gentile ideas and Gentile concepts and big picture stuff. When he speaks to the Athenians, what does he speak? He speaks their language. So too with us. So often we go into various cultural and, and social and familial situations and we just like a bull in a china shop, we just start tearing down everything in the name of Jesus, we think. And yet we see Jesus saying really wild things like to a Roman centurion, I've not seen so much faith in the whole of Israel. What? Jesus affirming a Roman, and not just a Roman, but a centurion? Come again now? We see Jesus affirming a Samaritan woman. We see Jesus building bridges with people. And when Paul comes on the scene, he picks up exactly where Jesus left off. Because Paul was not out to alienate people, to shut people out. Paul was out to bring people in. He was trying to draw people in. And when the accusation was made, hey, these guys, they're not blaspheming you. They're not blaspheming your gods. They're not blaspheming your temples. They're not doing all these things that you're carrying on about. No one could refute that. Let this be the case with us. That while people might think we're a little weird and a little zealous and a little passionate and a little quirky and religious, seventh day, what? May we be known for what we're for, less than what we're against. We'll build bridges, we'll build relationships, and we'll have opportunities to share the real message, which is the message of a crucified, risen, and soon-coming Savior.